Jesus said in Matthew 28 verse 19, Go therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Welcome to Go Teach All Nations, bringing you Christ's teachings through Australian and international speakers. And here is today's presenter, Pastor Bill Gates. Sanctuary, the cobwebs and the signals. It can be a very hard subject, but it's a vital subject to understand, but I will do my best. God's plan of salvation is designed to restore God's masterpiece of creation, which is human beings, back from sin and rebellion to loyal, obedient saints. The basis of God's government is his law, which reflects his character as this next slide reveals. So here's a picture of the place where God governs. The Lord has established his throne in heaven and his kingdom rules over all. Psalm 103 verse 19. God is sitting on his throne. He reigns over all his creation because there is nothing above him. What are the main principles of his government? Psalm 89 verse 14 says, Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Mercy and truth go before your face. And the character of God is shown in his government. He wants his people to show the same character. As Micah 6 verse 8 says, He has shown you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. But man disobeyed God in the Garden of Eden and thus God implemented his plan of salvation the moment it happened. We will pick up the story, not from the Garden of Eden, but from the time of Moses when he led the Israelites to Mount Sinai. You probably know that on the summit of Mount Sinai, God gave Moses three things. He gave him God's Ten Commandments so humans would know in written form what is sin. He gave them the civic and ceremonial laws. The civic laws taught them how to live with and adjudicate between each other. And the ceremonial religious law taught them how God would save them once a Messiah had arrived. And he gave them the blueprints for one of the most mysterious structures ever built on planet Earth. It was called the Earthly Sanctuary. It was a unique sanctuary or portable temple that represented God's dwelling place among his people here on planet Earth. Its overall design and services showed the Exodus people a three-dimensional panorama of God's plan to save them from the penalty of sin the power of sin, and the presence of sin. A careful look into the secrets of the sanctuary will solidify and enhance our understanding of how Jesus saves the lost and how he will lead his church to victory. These next few slides give a pictorial overview. In the plan of salvation, the requirements were that we would need the blood of an innocent ransom substitute, We'd need a sanctuary for the priest to make the atonement. We'd need a priest. There would need to be judgment, 
Finally, we want to see the destruction of Satan and all evil so that God ends up with a clean universe. So we'll now look at each of these individually. The blood of an innocent ransom substitute was provided on planet Earth by Jesus Christ. We all know that. And a sanctuary needed to be provided for the priest to make the atonement. And it was done on planet Earth, and it's also done in heaven. We'd need a priest. On planet Earth, the Levitical priesthood performed that role in Old Testament times. And in heaven, Jesus Christ is our high priest performing that role. Finally, there would be judgment on planet Earth, which was symbolized by the Day of Atonement services in Old Testament times, and in heaven from the 22nd of October, 1844. The destruction of Satan and all evil. Uh, On planet Earth, that was symbolized by the ceremony of the scapegoat on the Day of Atonement, and on planet Earth there will be the destruction of Satan, evil angels, and unrepentant sinners after the third coming of Christ. And then, of course, finally God ends up where there's no hospitals, no prisons, no sickness, no suffering, no pain anywhere in the universe. God ends up with a clean universe. The sanctuary is also the key to understanding several amazing prophecies that will impact every human being here on planet Earth just before the real Jesus Christ returns. So now we will look at several questions today on our subject and seek the answers from the Bible and the Spirit of Prophecy writings. And so our first question is, what did God ask Moses to build? Exodus 25 verse 8 tells us the answer, and you can read it with me so that you're involved. Let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. Because the nation of Israel was to become a theocracy, that is to say a nation under the direct governance of God, God wanted a place to dwell here on earth. God had earlier told them he would do this in Leviticus 26 verses 11 and 12. I will put my dwelling place among you and I will not abhor you I will walk among you and be your God, and you will be my people. So God needed time to teach them again all about himself and what he wanted to do for them and what he wanted them to do for him. The Israelite people had been slaves in Egypt for 400 years. They had lost most of the knowledge of the true God, having lived for so long among Egyptian pagans who worship pagan gods. And so the Lord told Moses to build a sanctuary, a special building that would serve as a dwelling place for the God of heaven. Question two, what did God expect his people to learn from the sanctuary? Well, Psalm 77 verse 13 gives us the answer. Your way, O God, is in the sanctuary. Who is so great a God as our God? So this Bible verse is telling us that if we understand the sanctuary doctrine, we will understand God's complete plan of salvation. After Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden as a result of disobeying God, the first thing they learned was that face-to-face communion with God was no longer possible. 
Secondly, because of their rebellion and disobedience, all people suffer the first sleep of death, from which there will be a resurrection, as John 5, verse 28 and 29 tell us. Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming, in the which all that are in the grave shall hear his voice. That's the voice of Jesus. And shall come forth. They that have done good unto the resurrection of life, that's eternal life, and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. Those that come up in the first resurrection can look forward to life eternal, living in perfect and real bodies, in a perfect and real place, doing real and wonderful things throughout eternity. God would also teach them that there's a second resurrection leading to eternal death from which no one will be saved, and how to avoid that. These subjects and teachings reveal that because man was separated from God, a coming Messiah would provide a bridge that would bring us back to God. Those who accepted God's plan to save them, but always on God's terms and not man's terms. Thus the sanctuary was twofold in intent. Firstly, it became a teaching aid in Old Testament times especially. And secondly, it would be a place for God to dwell in and manifest himself in the most holy place. But later, we will see that it has vital consequences for New Testament Christians as well. The Bible teaches that everything in the sanctuary, the dwelling furniture and the services, are symbols of something the coming Saviour Jesus Christ would do in saving the willing members of the human race. However, at the time of Moses, the Saviour or Messiah was still nearly 1,500 years away. So what is the significance of the articles of furniture in the sanctuary and in the courtyard? In the outer court were two articles of furniture, the brazen altar of sacrifice, where the spotless, innocent, but slain lambs were burned. This symbolised a future Lamb of God, as John the Baptist called Jesus. When a sinner brought a sacrificial animal to the door of the courtyard, a priest handed him a knife and a basin. The sinner laid his hands on the animal's head and confessed his sins. This symbolised the transfer of sin from the sinner to the innocent animal. At that point, the sinner was then considered innocent and the animal considered guilty. Since the animal was considered to be guilty, it had to pay the wages of sin, which is death. And by slaying the animal with his own hand, the sinner was thus graphically taught that his sin had caused the innocent animal's death and that his sin would ultimately cause the death of an innocent and future Messiah who would choose to die in order to save us, as Hebrews 9 verse 22 states, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Hebrews 9 verse 22. Thus planet Earth became the outer court for the real sanctuary in heaven. And that makes sense. You couldn't have lambs being killed up in the third heaven, could you? Because everything up there is sinless and perfect. 
Therefore, there is no death up there. The second article of furniture in the outer court on earth was the brass laver of water. The spirit of prophecy-inspired commentary has this to say about that in Patriarchs and Prophets, page 347. Between the altar and the door of the tabernacle was the laver, which was also of brass, made from the mirrors that had been the free will offering of the women of Israel. At the laver, the priests were to wash their hands and their feet whenever they went into the sacred apartments or approached the altar to offer a burnt offering unto the Lord. So now we'll look at the articles of furniture in the first apartment or the holy place of the sanctuary. There is the table of showbread. What did this symbolize? Well, in John 6:35, Jesus said unto them, I am the bread of life. He that comes to me shall never hunger, and he that believes on me shall never thirst. The next article of furniture in the first apartment was the seven-branched candlestick or menorah. This also represented Jesus Christ, as our next slide shows, in John 8, verse 12. Then spake Jesus again unto them, saying, I am the light of the world. He that follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. And then there was a third piece of furniture, which was the altar of incense. What did this represent? The incense represents the prayers of the saints rising to God, as Revelation 5 verse 8 says. The four and twenty elders fell down before the Lamb, the symbol of Jesus, having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odours, which are what? The prayers of the saints. So just as incense rises to the sky, so do our prayers rise to the supreme God of the universe. God hears them all and answers in his own time according to what he sees as best for us. This may explain why our prayers do not always seem to be answered the way we want them to be answered. A wise God knows what is best and he makes no mistakes. But we have been promised that when we get to heaven, what we thought were broken promises or no answers from God will be seen to have been a blessing. So now we'll look at the second apartment furniture. This is where the moral law of God, which defines sin, was stored inside the ark. The Ten Commandments, which God wrote on tables of stone, and which his true people will always endeavour to obey, were inside the ark. And who are God's true people according to God? Revelation 14 verse 12 answers that question for us. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. And so I'm not being misunderstood. God has his people in all churches. And our job is to help those people get a deeper understanding of what God is looking for. As I said, the Ark of the Covenant stored in the second apartment of the sanctuary is where the Ten Commandment law of God is store, stored. That law defines sin objectively 
and which, when broken, requires a blood offering to atone for the sins of mankind. The priest, having received the sacrificial blood out in the outer court, moved into and ministered in the first apartment of the sanctuary, where the bread, the candlestick, and the altar of incense were located. He ministered there for 359 days of the 360 days that made up the biblical and Jewish calendar year. But once a year, the high priest went from the first apartment into the second apartment on the day of judgment, which was the last day of the year, and it was to do a very special service. You see, the record of everyone's sins was recorded in the heavenly sanctuary. Therefore, the sanctuary needed to be cleansed of that record. It involved a judgment work and ultimately the removal of all the record of those sins from the sanctuary. And all of Israel and the Gentiles who joined them were reminded by the special service held once a year of the judgment to come. The final thing in the second apartment was two holy angels on top of the mercy seat and between them was the Shekinah glory which represented the very presence of God. As Psalm 80 verse 1 says, Gevir, O shepherd of Israel, a reference to Jesus the shepherd, you that led Joseph like a flock, you that dwells between the cherubims, shine forth. So now we can begin to make an application of all that we've seen today regarding the earthly sanctuary and what it all means. And we will start by looking into the strange dream that Joseph had shortly after becoming engaged to Mary, who was to be his wife. Notice what Matthew 1 verse 20 says, But while he, that is Joseph, thought on these things, Behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Notice that Jesus would save his people from their sins, not in their sins. Speaking about this, the spirit of prophecy comments as follows in 4th Testimonies, page 251. Jesus left his station of high command not to save people in their sins, but from their sins. Man is to leave the error of his ways to follow the example of Christ, to take up his cross and follow him, denying self and obeying God at any cost. In Matthew 1.23, Behold, a virgin shall be with child and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. Don't miss the significance of what the angel is telling Joseph. Within the baby Jesus is concealed his own divinity as God. God did that to protect all humans. For everyone would have perished if God revealed himself in all his glory. So Jesus grows into a man and then begins to become the shepherd of the flock. And then he dies on a cross to pay the ransom price depicted by those slain lambs in Old Testament times. 
Three days later, he rises from the tomb and is seen by Mary, who is weeping. But notice what happens when we read John 20, verse 15. What did Jesus say? Why are you weeping? She, not initially realizing that it is Jesus, and thinking it is the voice of a gardener, says, Sir, if you've borne him somewhere, tell me, where have you laid him? And I will take him away. Jesus speaks to her, and he says one word. Can you remember the word? Just one word. Mary. Instantly, Mary is happy now, for she has recognized the voice of Jesus, and she goes to touch his feet. And he says to her in John 20, verse 17, Touch me not, for I am not yet ascended to my Father. But go to my brethren and say unto them, I ascend unto my Father and your Father, and to my God and your God. Why was it important that Mary not touch Jesus at that moment in time? Well, let the Spirit of Prophecy writings, being the torch of illumination, answer the question for us. Desire of Ages, page 790. Jesus refused to receive the homage of his people until he had the assurance that his sacrifice was acceptable to the Father. He ascended to the heavenly courts and from God himself heard the assurance that his atonement for the sins of men had been ample, that through his blood all might gain eternal life. Now that Jesus knew his sacrifice was acceptable to God the Father in heaven, Jesus comes back to earth and meets up with two disciples on the road to Emmaus in the afternoon of the same Sunday. And then he meets with the disciples and he lingers with them for 40 days. But he told them to tarry for a further 10 days until they receive power from on high. Then he ascends to heaven to be our high priest. Ten days later, look what happens. The Holy Spirit descends upon the disciples with Pentecostal power. But here is an important point. It was more than power. It was God's signal that Christ had now been inaugurated as our high priest in the heavenly sanctuary. And that is what Pentecost means. 40 days plus 10 days equals 50 days. The disciples on earth obeyed God and waited in the upper room for the 10 days to pass. And while they wait, the special inauguration ceremony that I mentioned is taking place in heaven during that 10-day period. This will become very significant when we get to looking at one of the cobwebs of criticism. So now we'll look at how Christ plays all the parts. He's our perfect sacrifice, our perfect example for holy living, our perfect high priest, our perfect mediator, our perfect advocate, our wise judge, our coming king. So let us read of the many scriptures that confirm that we have a high priest in the heavenly sanctuary. Hebrews 8 verse 1. 
Now the things which we have spoken, this is the sum. We have such an high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. Verse 2, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched and not man. We believe the Bible to be the inspired word of God. And this verse is telling us there is a sanctuary in heaven. In fact, it was the prototype for the much smaller one built in the time of Moses here on earth. Verse 3, For every high priest is ordained to offer gifts and sacrifices. Wherefore, it is of necessity that this man, Jesus Christ, have somewhat to offer. And what could Jesus offer that nobody else could offer? His own innocent shed ransom blood. Shed in order to pay the price for your sins and mine. That is what he could offer. Verse 4, For if he were on earth, he should not be a priest, seeing that there are priests that offer gifts according to the law. That's the ceremonial law of Moses. Verse 5, you serve under the example and shadow of heavenly things, as Moses was admonished of God when he was about to make the earthly tabernacle. See, said he, that you make all things according to the pattern showed to you in the mount. So there is the biblical evidence for the existence of the sanctuary in heaven. But don't miss the importance of verse 4, where it said Jesus could not be a priest on earth. Why not? Well, the priests on earth were chosen by God from the tribe of Levi. Jesus was of the tribe of Judah. And that is why the Bible says he could not be a priest here on earth. But he is certainly our high priest in heaven. As our next Bible slide confirms in Hebrews 4 verse 14, Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. So now we're going to look at the first cobweb of criticism which brings confusion and deception. Some Bible critics do not even believe that there is a sanctuary up in heaven or they will say it is only symbolic. This is a gross error on their part due to the evidence we have already seen from the Bible. So I assess that probably these people have an agenda or they are away with the fairies. Because after reading the many examples in Hebrews of Jesus being our high priest in heaven, and the fact that there is a sanctuary in heaven built by God, the critics' conclusions are contrary to the many scriptures that we have already read today. So I imagine these higher critics will have a lot to answer for to God for leading people astray. But notice what the founder of the Harvard School of Law, named Simon Greenleaf, had to say about the Bible's higher critics. He said, and he was an atheist, by the way, who converted to Christianity. He said, it is the duty of the critic to prove his criticism rather than for the Christian to answer or defend truth. 
In the context of some of us modern-day Christians possibly having to go to court and testify for our faith, as Jesus said in Matthew 10, verse 18, we can do that gladly and willingly. But when push comes to shove, it's still for the critics to prove us wrong. Speaking about the higher critics' views on the sanctuary not being in heaven, an anonymous writer has written as follows, It's hard to understand how anyone could not see the great significance that the book of Hebrews gives to Christ's ministry in the heavenly sanctuary as part of the entire plan of salvation. Nothing in the verses indicates that the sanctuary in heaven, much less Christ's ministry there, should be seen as metaphorical or symbolic. In fact, Hebrews 8, right. Yes, and Hebrews 8, 5 makes it clear that the earthly sanctuary, a real structure with real priests and real sacrifices, was only a shadow of the reality of what Christ is doing for us in the heavenly sanctuary. And of course, if there's no real object for the sun to strike, there can never be a shadow. In other words, if there was no original sanctuary in heaven, there could never be a shadow or copy of it here on earth. Now at the same time as Christ was beginning his mediation ministry in the first department of the heavenly sanctuary in 31 AD, the disciples on earth, filled with the Holy Spirit's Pentecostal power, evangelized the then-known world in quick time. Whilst back in heaven, Christ is applying the benefits of his atoning sacrifice on earth on behalf of repentant sinners who seek a pardon. At that point, the word pardon has been placed in the heavenly records against that person's repented sin. And just as the record of the repentant sinner's sin was recorded in the sanctuary, thereby polluting the sanctuary, there must come a day when the sanctuary itself would need to be cleansed from those records and finally removed entirely. This means we can only fully understand the plan of salvation as we fully understand the symbolism connected with the earthly sanctuary and also the one that is in heaven. Frankly, I am surprised by the simplicity and yet the majesty of God's plan of salvation. Question three, does the Bible tell us when the sanctuary would be cleansed? Yes, it does. And it is found in the Bible book of Daniel. Among the Jewish captives in Babylon, around 530 BC, was a godly man by the name of Daniel, who was a prophet of God. He was visited by an angel who gave him understanding of a very large time prophecy spanning a period of 2,300 prophetic days, which the Bible tells us in Numbers 14, verse 34, and Ezekiel 4, verse 6, converts to 2,300 literal years. Let us look at the Bible prophecy. Daniel 8, verse 1. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared unto me, even unto me, Daniel, after that which appeared unto me at the first. And he, that's the angel Gabriel, said unto me, that's Daniel, unto 2,300 days shall the sanctuary be cleansed. So it's saying here that after 2,300 literal years, the sanctuary 
would begin to be cleansed. In other words, the day of judgment would begin. So if we can find the start date for that prophecy, we can find the date for when the sanctuary will begin to be cleansed. And the Bible tells us in Ezra 6 verse 3, In the first year of Cyrus the king made a decree concerning the house of God, the sanctuary, let the house be built, and they built it and finished it according to the commandments of the God of Israel and according to the commandment of Cyrus and of Darius and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. So history reveals that the start date for the third decree was 457 BC. Also, archaeology confirms the existence of the first decree issued by Cyrus. Here's an actual clay cylinder called the Cyrus Cylinder. And Cyrus became the Persian ruler of the Babylonian Empire after defeating the Babylonians, and it was Cyrus who initially commanded the restoration of the city of Jerusalem. So history and archaeology confirms the accuracy of the start date of the prophecy as 457 as recorded in Ezra 7. Our next slide shows us a prophetic chart taking us from 457 BC to AD 1844. 2,300 years minus the start date of 457 BC takes you to 1843. But we have to add one because there was never a year naught and it brings us to 1844 AD. So now we know when the cleansing of the sanctuary in heaven, or in other words, Judgment Day, would commence, 1844. Here is further proof. The longest time prophecy spanning 2,300 years was broken up into two parts, 490 years and 1,810 years. The first 490 years were allocated solely for the literal nation of Israel to get right with God, and that in turn is broken up into five further parts. When we look at what happened in that period, we will surely be astonished at how accurate this time prophecy is. Notice the first four pillars. You've got the start date at pillar number one. 49 years later, we see the completion of the restoration of the city and the walls. And 434 years later, the prophecy told us we would come to the very year that the Messiah would appear, 27 AD. And then three and a half years later, it gave us the prophecy of the very year that the Messiah would be crucified. And when Christ died at Calvary, the curtain in the temple of the earthly sanctuary was ripped from top to bottom by an unseen hand, signifying the end of the sacrificial aspects of the plan of salvation. But God gave the literal nation of Israel a further three and a half years to accept the Messiah, and they failed. Here's the pillar five marking the extra three and a half years that they were given. Stephen was teaching about Christ being the promised Messiah, but the rabbis would not hear of it. So they stoned Stephen to death, and that event marked the end of the literal nation of Israel as God's chosen messengers. Only an all-knowing God could have given this prophecy back in 537 BC and predicted so accurately the first five intricate and detailed milestones which were all fulfilled exactly on time. This time prophecy has converted many an atheist. And this aspect of the time prophecy used up the first 490 years from 457 BC to 34 AD. 
This then left a further 1810 years to be added to 34 AD, taking us to the beginning of the cleansing of the sanctuary in 1844. But because the earthly sanctuary had been destroyed by the Roman army in 70 AD, the Adventists of 1844 thought that the cleansing of the sanctuary must mean the cleansing of planet Earth by fire at the second coming of Christ. But when Christ did not come back, they suffered what is known as the Great Disappointment. However, by studying the scriptures diligently, they discovered that they were right as to the time of 1844, but wrong as to the event that was to happen. They discovered later from the Bible in Daniel 7.13 the destination that Christ was going to travel to and it wasn't to planet Earth. They found that Christ moved from the first apartment of the heavenly sanctuary to the second apartment of the heavenly sanctuary for the judgment work is done in the second apartment of that sanctuary. And this had been foretold and typified by the Day of Atonement services in the Old Testament times. But that's not how the critics saw it. So the cobweb of criticism number two, they accused the Adventists of concocting the sanctuary doctrine to explain away their mistaken teachings of Christ coming back to planet Earth supposedly on the 22nd of October, 1844. But by reading Daniel chapter 7, the Millerite Adventists discovered their mistake. As Daniel 7 verse 9 says, I beheld until the thrones were cast down, and the Ancient of Days, that's God the Father, did sit. Verse 13, I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man, a reference to Jesus, came with the clouds of heaven and came to the Ancient of Days, God the Father. So Jesus did travel on that day, but not to planet Earth as the Adventists of 1844 were expecting. Instead, Jesus travelled from the first apartment to the second apartment of the heavenly sanctuary to begin his new Judgment Day ministry. This explained the great disappointment of the Christians at that time, and it would be logical that they would be excited when you consider that their belief that Christ was going to come back, and knowing he brings his rewards with him, that would be a very exciting time. <clears throat> As Revelation 22 verse 12 said, Behold, I'm coming quickly, and my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. Obviously then, if he's going to bring his rewards first, there must have been a judgment. And the Bible says a lot about the judgment day, as we shall see. In that ceremonial law containing the judgment story, the Jews were told to commemorate once a year the day of judgment, also known as the Day of Atonement, also known as the Day of Yom Kippur. And that ministry was the beginning of the judgment phase. But there is a Bible text which seems to negate our understanding of what happened at the end of the 2,300 years. Higher critics and objectors refer to it, and it is this one. Mark 16, verse 19. So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. 
So here we have recorded in the Bible that when Jesus ascended into heaven, he sat down at the right hand of the Father in 31 AD. The obvious question then is this one. Where was the Father? And the answer is in the second apartment of the heavenly sanctuary. But critics of the sanctuary teachings raise this objection. How then can we say that Jesus went into the throne room of the Father in 1844 in the second apartment when he had already been there with the Father since his ascension in 31 AD? That is a good and valid objection. But the answer is equally valid and also simple to understand. So now it is quiz time. How many times did the high priest go into the second apartment of the earthly sanctuary on a yearly basis? How many? Right. Once a year on the Day of Atonement. This is a true statement, but it appears to support the higher critic's claim that if Christ sat down with God the Father in the second apartment at his ascension, how then could we claim that he went into the second apartment in 1844? Our defence, the sound's ringing a wee bit, gentlemen, if you can turn it down just slightly. Our defence of this sanctuary question is rock solid for there's one other occasion when the second apartment was entered into, and that was before the priestly ministry could begin. So your answer that he went in once is 100% correct, because by then he'd been ordained as the priest. But he went into that second apartment on one other occasion, before the priestly ministry could begin. And this is the key that shatters the criticism of the higher critics enabling us to peel away the cobweb of criticism. Let us now look at the inauguration ceremony after the building of the earthly tabernacle. It had been modelled on the original temple in heaven as per instructions that God gave to Moses. And you'll notice that in Exodus 30:26, God tells Moses, you shall anoint the tabernacle of meeting and the ark of the testimony. So Moses brought the ark into the tabernacle, hung up the veil of the covering, and petitioned off the ark of the testimony as the Lord had commanded him. So he anoints the sanctuary furniture, and that would require him to go into the second apartment to anoint the ark of the covenant. Then Moses anointed Aaron into the position of the high priest as requested by God. So now let us see how this service was replicated in the heavenly sanctuary in 31 AD with God the Father and Jesus Christ. Christ went into the second apartment in 31 AD to be with God the Father for the purposes of Christ's inauguration ceremony. That's why Mary wasn't allowed to touch his feet. Now we come to another criticism or well, the answer to the criticism rather. Moses didn't stay in the second apartment after anointing the furniture and anointing Aaron to be the high priest on earth. But more importantly to the question we're answering today is this one. Neither did Jesus stay in the second apartment with the Father in the heavenly sanctuary after he was anointed in 31 AD. 
This is a critical point. The fact that neither Moses nor Jesus stayed in the second apartments of their respective sanctuaries after their inauguration ceremonies. This answers the higher critic's first objection. The problem is of the objector's own making, for they did not understand the inauguration ceremony that established the respective high priestly offices. Firstly, the one on earth with Moses and Aaron, and secondly, the one in heaven with God the Father and Jesus Christ. As a result, they could see that Jesus sat down on a heavenly throne beside the heavenly Father in 31 AD, but they mistakenly left him there in their thinking. Now notice something important. After each inauguration ceremony, God did something special. Exodus 40, verse 34. Then the cloud covered the tabernacle of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And so God poured out the Shekinah glory, showing God's pleasure at the inauguration ceremony on earth. This was heaven's signal of approval, indicating that the priestly ministry on earth could begin with the Levitical priesthood instead of the firstborn running the priesthood office for his family. And likewise, God did the same after the 10 days inauguration ceremony of Christ in the heavenly sanctuary in 31 AD. And the outpouring of Pentecost was heaven's signal indicating three things. Firstly, that now the inauguration ceremony of heaven was completed, Jesus Christ's ministry in the first apartment of the heavenly sanctuary had begun. Secondly, that the disciples on earth could now go and evangelize the then known world using the Pentecostal power that God had given them. Thirdly, that the old Levitical priesthood of the Jews on earth was now finished forever. Therefore, we do not need to confess our sins to an earthly priest anymore. Instead, we can pray direct to God in heaven. This explains the objection that people have today to the idea that Jesus has always been in the second apartment since 31 AD. And therefore, how could he go back in there in 1844 if he was already there? But the critics don't give up. They have a second objection. And what was that objection? You have the Father in the second apartment for 1800 years, and you have Christ in the first apartment for the same period of time. Do you mean that they never met or talked for all that period of time because of the veil or wall that separated them for those 1800 years? That's another very good question. Here is the answer to the second objection, and this will answer the assumption that theologians make that God the Father and God the Son were separated for all that length of time. It is true that the priest in the earthly sanctuary was separated from God, but that was because the earthly priest was a sinner and had to be separated from God by the veil or the priest would have died instantly. But Jesus was not a sinner and therefore did not need to be separated from God the Father as we shall see when we look into the Spirit of Prophecy writings, published in a book called Early Writings, page 55. I saw the Father rise from the throne and in a flaming chariot go into the Holy of Holies, 
within the veil and sit down. So the first thing we can notice here, he's going into the Holy of Holies, which means he was out in the holy place with Jesus throughout the whole period. They were never separated by a veil as the earthly priest had to be separated in the earthly sanctuary. The Holy of Holies is a reference to the second apartment of the heavenly sanctuary. I saw the Father rise from the throne and in a flaming chariot go into the Holy of Holies within the veil and sit down. Now notice what happens next. Then a cloudy chariot with wheels like flaming fire surrounded by angels came to where Jesus was. He's in the first apartment. He steps into the chariot, was born to the holiest where the Father sat. So now the Father and the Son are together again, but this time in the second apartment so that they can begin their judgment work. And so if this was a real court case, then our imaginary judge would say both objections are overruled. Now notice a quote from the Spirit of Prophecy writings again. Great Controversy, page 479, commenting on Daniel 7, verse 10. Thus was presented to the prophet's vision the great and solemn day when the characters and the lives of men should pass in review before the judge of all the earth and to every man should be rendered according to his works. The Ancient of Days is God the Father and holy angels as ministers and witnesses in number 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands and thousands attend this great tribunal. So we are saved by grace from the penetry, the power and the presence of sin when we faithfully join and follow Christ in his first kingdom of grace here on planet earth. And in the current judgment work which is dealing with the Christian dead, God is determining who were wearing the robe of Christ's righteousness that enabled the dead saints to live in his holy presence forever in his second kingdom of glory. Eventually that judgment will move to the cases of the living Christians. So we've been looking into the subject of the sanctuary, the cobwebs of criticism against the sanctuary doctrine, and God's signals at important occasions. Let us bring the subject to a close with some powerful observations by the Millerite Adventists in 1844 that I believe put God's seal of approval on the sanctuary doctrine. And so I'm not being misunderstood. We are saved by the penalty of sin by the blood of Jesus Christ. We're saved from the power of sin by the righteousness of Jesus Christ. But the difference here is that although he supplies the righteousness or the robe, we are the ones who are expected to wear it. Millions of Christians say that salvation was finished at the cross when Christ died and paid the price for mankind's sins. And if that were true, why then do we need a heavenly priest in a heavenly sanctuary if, as they say, salvation was finished at the cross? Now, I want you to put your thinking caps on, folks, and follow the logic here. It's really interesting. Something was finished at the cross. So what was finished? The answer is simple. The provision of saving blood, that is what was finished. But the Bible says there is much more to being saved than just the provision of innocent ransomed blood. Our next few slides will open up some new thoughts worthy of our serious consideration. 
But again they say the atonement was made and finished on Calvary when the Lamb of God expired. So men have taught us, and so the churches believe. But it is none the more true or sacred on that account if unsupported by divine authority. Perhaps few or none who hold that opinion have ever tested the foundation on which it rests. So this is now where we need our thinking caps on. Here's the first question. If the atonement was made on Calvary, by whom was it made? The making of the atonement is the work of a priest. But who officiated on Calvary? Roman soldiers and wicked Jews. The slaying of the victim was not making the atonement. Why not? Because the sinner slew the victim, not the priest. Leviticus 4, verses 1 to 4, and verses 13 to 15. After that, now here it is, the priest took the blood and made the atonement. Leviticus 4, 5 to 12, and Leviticus 4, verses 16 to 21. The atonement was made in the sanctuary, but Calvary was not such a place. Therefore, he, that is Christ, did not begin the work or making of the atonement, whatever the nature of that work may be, till after his ascension, when by his own blood he entered the heavenly sanctuary for us. This article was written by an Owen Crozier, one of the people who experienced the great disappointment of the 22nd of October, 1844. But his article helped the disappointed saints discover the fact that having shed innocent blood at Calvary was one thing, but you needed a priest to offer the blood in order to make the atonement, and you needed a sanctuary. Knowing that the one on earth had been destroyed under General Titus in 70 AD, this led them to discover in the book of Hebrews the one in heaven. So now you can see that the work of a priest in both the earthly Old Testament sanctuary and the New Testament heavenly sanctuary are an essential and vital part of the salvation process. Thus the idea that the Millerite Adventists or the Seventh-day Adventist Church concocted a false narrative to explain the great disappointment of 1844 is patently wrong. No wonder the Bible said in Psalm 77 verse 13, Your way, O God, is in the sanctuary. Who is so great a God as our God? We mentioned about the judgment being done in a sanctuary, but once again the cobweb of criticism raises its ugly head. This time the criticism is that there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus and therefore the judgment day does not apply to Christians. They are quoting Romans 8 verse 1 which says, There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh but after the Spirit. So if there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ... Does the Bible teach us how we can know that we are in Christ? Yes, it does. 1 John 2 verse 3. And hereby we do know that we know him if we keep his commandments. So God is saying that this is how we can know we are in Christ when we love him and keep, which means obey 
his commandments. Not to be justified, for only the blood of Christ justifies, but in order to be sanctified. Verse 4. He that says, I know him and keeps not his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. So we're not to keep the law of Moses, for those ceremonial laws were nailed to the cross, as Ephesians 2.15 and Colossians 2.14 state. But we are to keep the Ten Commandments, for it is that law that defines sin, and it is that law that God uses in the judgment, and it is that law that when obeyed in the strength of the Holy Spirit and motivated by love for God, gives us a Christ-like character and helps us to know that we are in him. Therefore, there's no condemnation on those who love God and keep his commandments. But I would not want to be in the shoes of those Christians who claim to be in him, yet make no attempt to be commandment keepers. According to scripture, they will come into condemnation. For as our next verse says in verse 5, can you read this with me, folks? This is a very powerful verse. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly is the love of God perfected. Hereby know we that we are in him. So obedience to God's Ten Commandments is how God's love is perfected in God's saints and how we can know that we are in him. Christ is ministering on our behalf today in the heavenly sanctuary above. And I therefore conclude today's message by affirming my supreme confidence that there is a sanctuary in heaven and that is where Jesus Christ is ministering on our behalf. Praise his holy name. So may God bless you and your loved ones today and forevermore. Amen. This message was made available by the Stanmore Seventh-day Adventist Church. For more resources like this, visit stanmoresdachurch.net. It's been a pleasure bringing you this program here on 3ABN Australia Radio. 